0: Hey everybody, what's up? This is Joseph Coin, and welcome to the ACA podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the ACA podcast. I'm your host Joseph Coin, and this is episode 75. Now, the ACA podcast is brought to you by Bell Performance. Bell Performance make Nordboard. Force Frame, Human Track, and Force decks. I also believe they're just quite uh, smart speed as well. But look, I always talk about Force decks and the Force Frame uh, because I'm a big fan of them. But for the other two, the nordboard. look, it's a device that you can measure force or torque output from the hamstrings during a Nordic curl. And it's great for identifying any athletes that may be at risk of hamstring or posterior chain injury. Meanwhile, Human Track is a 3D motion capture and biomechanical analysis system that lets you assess movement range, quality, balance and stability and more than 20 common tests like your cervical flexion extension, your jock jump, your overhead squat, just to name a few. Anyway, all of Val's products, very, very easy to use. You do not need a PhD to use them and they produce data very quickly so you're not wasting any time as a coach. So if you're looking to add some of this technology to your program, school, club, or practice, please reach out to them. Valperformance.com is the website. Now on all the socials, you can also shoot them an email, info at valperformance.com. Another thing I want to chat on before we get into this podcast is the ASCA conference this year. I've mentioned this on previous episodes, but it it is all online. It is currently running until December 12th this year. So if you haven't registered for it yet, you can still get access to all the presentations up until that date. I've been able to watch some of the presentations so far. They've all been awesome. So if you haven't registered, jump on the ASCA website right now at strengthconditioning.org. Please sign up. Getting back to the podcast and this episode, the guest for episode number 75 is Natalie Deegan. Natalie currently works as a lecturer in sports performance at the Australian College of Physical Education and is the Penrith Panthers Premier League netball strength and conditioning coach. From 2010 to 2020, she held roles at the New South Wales Institute of Sport and Sports Science, where she was involved in athlete testing and monitoring along with athlete physical preparation using heat and altitude training from sports including track and field kayaking, netball, and rugby league. Uh, She's also been a conference presenter at the ACA International Conference. She did that in 2015, 2019, and she's on again this year if you haven't uh, seen her or watched her lecture yet. Highly recommend it. Now, in this podcast episode, we talk about two main topics, the first being menstrual cycles and female athlete performance, and the second being heat and altitude exposure or intervention for athlete performance based on her experience aforementioned experience at uh, NSWIS. So this conversation included the importance of always looking at the individual athlete first and then the menstrual cycle, ways and methods of tracking that cycle, and possible ways of syncing up training around a cycle based on the preliminary research out there. We also spoke on how and why you might use heat or altitude for athletes, and whether passive versus active interventions might be more worthwhile. So I'm saying all this with a really great discussion that I came away with a lot, a lot of new knowledge from. So without further ado, let's get the show started. Okay, we're on the ACA podcast. We're really pleased to have Nat Deegan here today. Nat, welcome aboard. Thank you, Joseph. Nat, look, great Great to have you on. Um, can you just start, give the listeners a bit of a background about yourself? How, why did it all begin for you in sports science, uh, strength and conditioning? So I was actually
1: a personal trainer um, and I used to work in a gym where a um, an academic from ACPE came over to do my lunchtime classes and she suggested I put my name down for casual teaching and that kind of eventually led to some sessional teaching. Um, and through there I actually met the principal scientist at NSWIS and that was how I got offered a role at NSWIS in applied research and that kind of then I jumped around in a few departments over time. Um, I might I think I might be the only casual who worked across three departments being SNC physiology and applied research. Um, and then I was, like, over that sort of first couple of years cemented my permanent part-time at ACPE in lecturing and kept the casual work at NSWIS the whole time until COVID. Unfortunately, that's when they stopped using casuals, um, but I had picked up Panthers netball through uh, connection at NSWIS. So I've been coaching the Panthers Premier League girls um, since early or late sorry, 2019.
0: Yeah, awesome, awesome, and I, I know we're going to touch on some of the some of the things and the sort of uh, research and specializations you had at at NSWIS later on in <laughs> this podcast. Um, but I, I know a really big interest area for you is uh, on the menstrual cycle and female athlete performance. <laughs> um, maybe a given, but but uh, look, do you want to just give the readers a bit of a uh, summary of what's going on there and and uh, what we need to know basically?
1: It's a really big area and we still don't understand it all that well in terms of how the cycle may impact on female performance overall. And I think the biggest thing that's coming through is to understand that athletes are individual and even the same athlete, their cycle can really vary from month to month. Sometimes I have a lot of symptoms and sometimes I'll just carry on as normal. And I think although it's really good that the research is trying to understand if strength or endurance or elements of performance or physiology, psychology are impacted, that at the end of the day, we need to, like we do with our other areas of coaching, treat each athlete as an individual and try and understand them and what in this cycle might affect them individually rather than trying to throw a blanket over it and prescribe
0: based on cycle phases Mm. For, for the listeners, can, can you just explain the sort of different menstrual cycle phases? Okay, yeah.
1: So um, when a female gets their menses, which is their period, that is um, called in the literature the, the follicular phase. So the early follicular phase for about the first three to five days on average, but can be two to seven days in females. It can vary that much. Um, that's when a girl is bleeding, having their, their period. So it's the early follicular phase. And then the mid and late follicular phase um, is around the first 12 days of a cycle can vary up to about 14. And then the female ovulates. So that ovulation in the middle. And then after ovulation, it's um, transitions into what's called the lateal phase of the cycle. So um, the remaining 12 to 14 or 15 days again depending on the individual um, until their next menses or the next period
0: mm. and, and then you just mentioned sort of setting up training around particular phases of the menstrual cycle what's the sort of uh, um, perception or or um, what would people do if they were trying to set up things around that around that cycle like what is the uh, you just mentioned probably not the best way of doing it, but what would people be generally trying to do around that cycle with female athletes?
1: Um, I think just tailor things to where a female feels the best is one thing. There is some research, so it's not all bad that, that research has been done, but there's some, some indication that, that the mid um, follicular phase, that early part of the cycle before ovulation, after a girl finishes her, her period or a um, is the best time to put some heavy strength work in um, because there's a slightly um, more anabolic hormone profile in that early part of the phase. So that's something that's been tested a bit. And there was one study where, that I looked at not long ago in some well-trained recreational females and they performed better on a max strength test in that mid follicular phase. So uh, you know, roughly six to 10 days after the onset of the period. Um, and then, but on the same token later in, the cycle so just before Gilgits and next menses is where you sort of back off strength a little bit. If you're really trying to, to tailor, um, again, it's not heavy, like big studies that show that but there's some sort of indications those two times are where it's good to load heavy in that early follicular and might be better to back off a little bit um, in that late luteal phase. Mm-hmm. I hope that answer to the question. <laughs>
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and that's is that, that's the strength side of things. Is there a uh, conditioning yeah. approach as well? Or is there, is there do people use different uh, principles around conditioning within that cycle as well? Um, I guess another one to be aware
1: of is that some girls will just really struggle to get through heavy, high-intensity training sessions when they've got their period. Um, and there's a rugby study that came out of the UK with elite girls, and that was one of the things that the athletes reported that – Um, Some of them were concerned about doing high intensity training and how they were going to get through that if they were bleeding, especially if they're bleeding heavily. Sorry about the um, concept, but that's, you know, that's the nature of what we're talking about. Um, So that might be something to be mindful of to back off training intensity. Um, And there's, again, another one looking at marathon runners, and they did acknowledge that it was recreational and their limitations in their research. But for some reason, and I don't even understand this too well, but runners, performed or did their best marathon time in the lateal phase more so, more often than in the, when they're in the flip phase. So they were tracking their cycle and they knew where they were up to. Um, endurance performance seemed to be better in that population um, later on in their cycle. So after they've ovulated and before the next onset of menses. Yeah,
0: right. Hopefully Isn't the listeners it? are
1: keeping up with the, yeah, with the menstrual phases.
0: Sure. A, a, yeah. And then- so, yeah. so, there's like this general information there but, but you almost uh, um, suggest it's better just. And, and I think I heard this somewhere actually is to um, uh, treat the symptoms rather than the cycle or, or I, I forget who I heard it from but that would be what, yeah. what you'd suggest with, with the female athletes
1: yeah 100% and I think the biggest thing is just encouraging athletes to understand their own symptoms and their own cycle and there's so many apps around that they can just Download and track on the go. They don't need calendars and diaries like we used to need in the past. Um, they can just plug away, and you know, if there's a day where they have some bad symptoms, they might just be able to make a note in the in the app. Um, and you know, if there's something that sort of recurs over time, then that might be something that they could potentially talk to their coaches about. That you know, this particular day in my cycle, I'm just not feeling great. I'm not responding to training.
0: Sure, sure. And are there? One, one question that just pops to mind, are there any apps you recommend? And if, if you were gonna set this up for a uh, athlete and, and a, or as a strength and conditioning coach or for as a sports scientist or even a coach, um, how would you uh, look at it? Would it be like going over it uh, after sort of three months and seeing what the consistent themes were um, or would it be even a bit more detailed? What would the sort of structure be that you might suggest? Um, I think firstly, finding something
1: that's easy for the athlete to use so i've used a few and played around with a few one called clue um, and one called flow (laughs) they have some pretty you know catchy names that are based around that and um i actually find clue it's a bit less sports sciencey but really easy to use so you can just go into the calendar and you know let it know when you get your menstrual cycle like the first day And whether it's heavy, medium, light and other symptoms, it has other symptoms that you can plug away in there as well if you're bloated or you know without too much information to the listeners, but you get the idea. Um and then you can go back any time in the in the the month and just tap on if you're sleeping bad or um you know if, if you've got those gassy symptoms or anything like that, they're just uncomfortable. Um and it will form it will track that over time and then it'll give you some like recurring symptoms. But I think to get a good picture of where, what's happening, you'd probably need to track for about six months. Um, but even then, sometimes you'll just have that really weird one, 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 one or two cycles where things just are you know, really are uncomfortable for a female that wouldn't normally have um, you know, period pain and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's really interesting for me because I've, I've been in situations where we have had, and I'm gonna ask you about this in a second, but situations where we've had a single female athlete as part of the training squad, and we've actually set up the training all around the menstrual cycle and where testosterone peaks and in that menstrual cycle um, to try and optimize the training. And we, eventually we did away with it because it wasn't really uh, um, doing any better than what we'd done previously. Um, and then also other situations where some females might be experience really heavy or say menstrual bleeding, might even have sort of uh, incidents of lower back pain that seemed to be related to when their period was. Um, and then have yeah. things from there, and and just understanding that uh, so, so it is so individual, and some girls will react and and have uh, uh, much more of a um, issues, much more issues than than other girls. And then, but I I wasn't, and and this is what you're saying. Sometimes those menstrual cycles can be much worse than the others. There can be quite a lot of intra individual variation. If that's if that's correct
1: yeah and sometimes you you wouldn't even be able to pinpoint a reason it's just for some reason the hormone profile has a an adverse effect on you know abdominal cramping and back pain and all the things that tend to happen or if there's something stressful outside of training and you know in life that's going on that might um exaggerate the symptoms like i don't really know a lot about that that's a bit of speculation but it sort of makes sense that if they're stressed in another part of life then that might trigger a worse cycle um, in some, or if they're not sleeping well or eating well or, you know, those other things that we
0: take for granted. Sure, sure, a bit of psychosomatic type uh, type effects. Uh, um, besides that, potentially, potentially yeah, yeah. Uh, are there any other things you think might affect it or, or might uh, potentially exacerbate the symptoms?
1: Um, I have, I remember reading this is a while ago, but I remember like last time when I presented, um, that younger athletes, for some reason, feel more pain and struggle more. So the after the onset of menses, which you know in athlete populations is around 14 to 15 years old, they're usually a little bit later than an average female. And for those first few, like three to five years, what, after the onset of the first menses, hormones take quite a while to settle down, if I remember rightly. And that in itself can just create you know, discomfort and stuff like that in a young athlete, as well as psychologically, those younger girls dealing with you know, that part of life that they haven't had to deal with, I guess, and then training around that and all the things that go around some of that aesthetic sports. So I think that could be um, just an area, I'd just be mindful of as coaches, I guess. I don't know if that really answered the question too well, but um, I do remember reading that the young girls for some reason do have like more erratic symptoms
0: yeah, sure, sure. Um, and then now you've got this—you've uh, got this sort of six months, or you've been tracking on on the app as an athlete, or and uh, you're you're sharing it with your coach where where relevant and where appropriate. Um, and you've sort of got the six months. Um, besides this, you're doing the tracking. How else would you would you think to optimize the training and, and performance for females? Um, in and around that tracking is it just a case of looking at the symptoms and going okay this is where we need to back off or we don't need to back off so much for you but for this person we might need to do more what are the sort of key points or tips you might have there i think spot on
1: what you just said just individualizing some girls you probably won't have to change much at all if they just take a few painkillers and they can carry on like normal, and they don't have a heavy bleed you know they just have a nice light period, which some athletes are fortunate that that's so for that kind of girl, you're probably able to just continue on training as normal and periodize as you would um, a, a training program without having to take the menstrual cycle into too much consideration. But in saying that, most females do feel their best regardless of whether they're aware of it or not after that menses. So after those sort of three to five days in the average is the average period cycle. So from about day six to about day 10 is where you can, maybe put on a really heavy week if that corresponds to a good time in your training program, of course. Um, and then for those really heavy bleeders, you might have to be mindful for a few days. Some girls have a really heavy cycle. It's about 10% of females and about 10% of athletes in one of the studies that's reported on athletes as well. So unfortunately, sometimes our elite athletes don't um, gain the benefit of having a lighter bleed, which is one, you know something that training does um, sometimes result in. And so uh, for a heavy bleeder, we just have to be really mindful of that, I guess is the, the take home that they might need a few days where trainings be altered.
0: Sure, sure. And, and then I guess um, it, on the other end of the scale, and, and I've, I've had this personally as well, where, where female athletes might not have their menstrual cycle, um, but do you still need to uh, try and understand where they might have been in those instances? Or is it, is it still a really big unknown uh, type deal out there?
1: I think that's a really unknown, and I really think that one should be referred on to a, you know, a sports doc or a female health specialist, because you know, that in itself is a really big concern. And it, I know it's really prevalent in active females for them to lose their menses to go into amenorrhea, or what you know, what we know as the female athlete triad, but um, I don't know that they present the same sort of symptoms. But obviously, there's risks around bone health and that sort of thing because the estrogen is not um, functioning the way that it should. You know, if the menstrual cycle is like shut
0: down. Mm. But yeah, that's it's a big area of health that we need to be aware of. All right, so we've got, we've got these different scenarios. Uh, anything else we need to know to sort of optimize the training performance for the females?
1: Um. No, I think just encouraging our our females to actually understand themselves. And again, like, you know, sorry, I'll go back to the research, but there was another study that came out, an Australian study, where they found even elite level, like state and national level females, 22 was the average age, and it ranged from, I think, 17 to late, late 20s. And some of them didn't even know the answer to 12, what seemed simple questions around Um, menstrual and oral contraception and amenorrhea which is you know um, loss of menstrual cycles like some of them just didn't get the the questions right or didn't answer the question which is quite concerning um that our our athletes don't really understand their own bodies that well or that's what that study indicated anyway
0: yeah And, and then what would be the strategies to try and improve that i guess to to uh if there is a really lack of understanding in the athlete population, is that, is that a role for s coach to try and improve that or, or to provide support there? What, what's the understanding there? <laughs> That's a big question.
1: Um, it's I, I think we definitely play a role as an s and coach. Um, having the conversation can be quite tricky and understand the the male and female dynamic there can be quite difficult. But um, I think maybe conveying the message that you know, this is a really important part of your health um, and understanding the basics of what happens from month to month and how that can affect your training and your performance and your adaptation um, is something that, you know, it's part of our job, I guess, as a coach-athlete, to have that part of that coach-athlete relationship without sounding too cliche. Um, And then, you know, if they're not comfortable, because some girls aren't going to be comfortable talking to their male coaches. um, Fortunately, there are some really good programs out there and one of them is the AIS Female athlete health initiative that might be not not be the right name but we can refer them on to um, resources like that where they can at least find out the basics and watch some nice, nice easy videos and do some quizzes if they want to learn a little bit more and I think we should encourage our, our girls to be doing that sort of thing
0: for sure for sure do you think it would also be a case of, of the coaches not being as aware of of how it sort of affects uh, uh, well-being and psychology and, and performance along with athletes
1: Potentially, and I think there's an a, you know, underlying sort of thought among a lot of female athletes, oh, what would my male coach know about mm. his cycle? He's never had one, so why would they want to talk to a male coach? Um, but, you know, some of the messages coming through are also that girls want to start to have these conversations. So, you know, maybe um, both coaches and athletes just need to, one of us need to break the ass, I guess, and, and start to have that conversation. And, you know, if you don't get too far as a coach the first time, it might be a matter of talking to a family member or a doctor or trying again another week later or something like that and just continuing on um, the early education.
0: Yeah, cool, cool, cool. Would you have any tips for male coaches that, that uh, <laughs> uh, are needing, like male s and coaches or coaches, wh- whatever, sports coaches that uh, might help them start these conversations or, uh, or just just spark a bit of conversation there if they think it's warranted or how to approach so it speak- in the first, first way?
1: Yeah, definitely tricky. And I think younger male coaches might struggle with, you know, how do I address this conversation? Having spoken to a couple, some of them are straight up and they'll just go, look, can I ask you, um, to a female athlete, can, can, you know, can I ask you some personal questions about your health? Um, and then they'll go in from there, like some sort of icebreaker. Um, and others, I guess they might, you know, at least bring their awareness to like, this is an area of, of, that's going to affect your performance. I, you don't need to share all your personal information with me. Any that you want to not talk, don't have to answer these questions. But at least here's some maps and here's some information that go away and have a look at this and come back and talk to me.
0: Um, I don't. Hopefully, that's some sort of help. For sure. For sure. Yeah. No. Yeah. Two approaches there, and I, and I guess uh, also referring out to that AIS uh, framework the women's health framework um, would also be really helpful and, and passing on those sort of apps you mentioned uh, that, that can start tracking the, the menstrual cycle and the symptoms would be really good. Uh, I actually had another question there for um, just in regards to, and maybe I'm, I'm pretty woefully uneducated in this area. but My understanding is that when a group of females are together, all their cycles might start syncing up. One is, is that true or is that correct? And then does that mean there might be different considerations for a team sport uh, athlete who's part of a group of females versus an individual sport athlete that might be uh, not with a group of females.
1: Yeah. I've heard, I've heard this too, but I've never played a team sport where I've been living day to day in a group of you know female athletes. So I don't know if it's true. Um, I've heard that the dominant female, <laughs> all the other females suckle sync with the, whoever the dominant female is, but really? I've I've never actually read that. Um, you know, in, in like evidence or even on a blog or anything like that. But um, if it's true, I guess in a way it might make your job as an s coach a bit easier because you could presume, which is dangerous, but you could presume that most of your females are going to be menstruating at the same time. Sure. Um, but, I, yeah, I really don't know whether it's 100% true or not, but I have heard that from male coaches um, and, and from some, you know, people out. Maybe not in the in S&C industry.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. Um, but in
1: terms of individual athletes, I guess, um, I don't know if their cycle, you know, I've also heard, I've, I've heard the same thing even just in a household, that female cycles sync up with their sisters and their mums if their mums still menstruating. So I guess if you're working with an individual athlete, um, maybe who they're living with at home, if, if these things are true, um, might have an influence on their performance.
0: <laughs> I mean, if, if, I'm just speaking uh, uh, hypothetically here, but yeah, it would make your job a lot easier if, if there were people that were bad, like quite severely affected by the cycle and, and they all just happen to be on the same week of the, of the month would be, would yeah. be quite, quite convenient. But I don't know if life works <laughs> out that way. I really don't. Um, is, is there anything else on the, on the menstrual cycle and performance in female athletes you'd like to just touch off on or, or speak to?
1: Um, but just sort of preparing. I uh, I came across an article that was published quite recently. That was um, what male coaches want to know um, mm-hmm. about the cycle, and it was only just it's a 2021 publication, so it's only quite recent. And it's from Australia. And um, as male coaches working with team sport female athletes, and I guess they wanted to know the answers to the simple questions like, you know, what do we need to take into consideration for training? How does it affect performance? how do we speak to our female athletes about this? Um, and I think the other one was about diet and exercise, you know, just general exercise, like how does it affect their day-to-day life? And I don't know that we have all the definite answers, but it's what it showed me is it's good that there's this movement of, um, you know, within our industry that um, I feel like it is a really big area and it's starting to become more and more recognised um, as an important consideration overall because some girls are heavily affected, you know, by it. Whether it's pain or bleeding or combination of that. Um, and some, it's not such an issue. And I know some girls have spoke to me in the past and they're like, well, we track it in AMS, which is your athlete management system. But I don't think my coach has ever looked at that. I've been doing that for 10 years. So I guess starting to use this information, so in, at least inform, just even if it's day to day recovery and performance, I guess, is, is the last thing.
0: Mm, for sure. Yeah, and you're probably better better off being aware of it than not. Even if you don't necessarily yeah. act on it.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Mm. Yeah, cool. Uh, cool. I
1: think just teaching our girls to appreciate that it's part of, it's going to be, you know, it's something that they should, if they don't have a regular cycle, that's a, a concern. Um, and if they don't understand their cycle, that's another concern. And then if they're taking the pill, that's, I don't actually know a lot about the oral contraceptive pill, but um, I th- apparently about 50% of female athletes do take pill, according to a few of the sources I've read. And some of them, it's so they can regulate around competition. But mm-hmm. I think understanding the side effects of how that changes their estrogen and their other hormone profile um, is an important area too. Um, you know, that can mask amenorrhea because you're still going to get a cycle, um, you know, you really lean athletes. So there's, there's a few things there, I guess, as coaches we just need to uh, be aware of maybe finding out whether you, your females are naturally cycling or on appeal on a could be the first um, informative question you could ask.
0: 100%. Yeah, I've, I've heard of teams um, and, and sports physicians, or maybe not necessarily prescribing the contraceptive, but it was recommended for athletes so they could sync up their cycle with when competitions were. And then uh, in uh, the mixed martial arts, obviously there's a weight-cutting aspect to it, and, and it can be quite hard if you're trying to make weight when your cycle is is coming about for a female and they might use the oral contraceptive pill just to line up um, their menstrual cycle around competition and around their weight cutting in particular.
1: Yeah, another tricky thing with the oral contraceptive is it often results in a bit of weight gain in the first Mm. few months. It's not as prevalent in athletic females as it is in just general population females, but it's something to be mindful of. But I know, you know, working with females myself and being a female, one of the most dreaded things is, is to get a, a painful day of your period, a day on of an important competition. So I know some athletes would take the pill to make sure that if they're racing on a Saturday or Sunday in, in an athletics type, you know, swimming, that they get their period on a Monday or Tuesday. So they completely annihilate that if it's a, you know, a weekend based um, competitive schedule.
0: Mm, for sure, for sure. Um- yeah, that's so interesting, so interesting. It just adds a whole other component to what you have to think about when you're dealing with female athletes. And uh, uh, I, for one, find it, find it interesting anyway. Um, anything else, Nat, uh, on, on the menstrual cycle and performance?
1: Um, no, I think, I think pretty much given the listeners a fair bit of science there.
0: Cool, 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 cool. So I want to move to the next sort of topic I really want to discuss with you. And I, I know one of your sort of specialisations is around heat and altitude adaptations with athletes, like athletes doing training in, in heat and altitude. Um, yep. uh, t- tell, us, like, tell us, give us a bit of a background um, and, and then uh, what you might want to, to achieve out of using these type of interventions with athletes.
1: This was a while ago <laughs> that I started looking at this stuff, but with um, heat, I think the interest comes in acclimation. So in our team sport athletes, that might be travelling to hot environments, like um, for competition or you know for a, a round of a competition. Um, and it, in our endurance athletes, obviously heat tolerance um, and doing a heat acclimation before an important competition just improves thermoregulation and, and can can pr- promote positive physiological adaptations in stroke volume and sweat rate and all those things. Um, to, to make it when, you know, when the important performance comes around, they're actually better able to deal or com- like perform um, in even a, t- a temperate environment following a bout of, of heat acclimation. I hope that makes sense. It's been a little while since I've read it. Um, altitude as well, or do you not? Yeah, altitude?
0: That? Yeah, tell, tell us about altitude. Um,
1: oh. So, yeah, I have uh, with, with simulated altitude, so intermittent hypoxic training, Um, is one type of altitude training. And then there's obviously like live high, train high or train low. The highest altitude we have that's livable in Australia is um, Falls Creek, which I think from memory is about 1,800 metres above sea level, which is about the lowest natural altitude that you would want to take your athletes to. It's not really worth it um, if you're going much lower than that. Um, But what living at altitude, I actually haven't spent considerable amounts of time personally at altitude, but I've spoken to some of the physiologists that used to take endurance athletes to Falls Creek, and they used to say for the first couple of days, athletes are just tired because you're living in in, um, a hyperbaric um, type environment where there's less oxygen in the air, so there's less inspired oxygen going into your lungs like every minute of the day. Um, And then you get them to train on top of that, and they're just training intensities drops and then their recovery time just increases because of that whole like difference in compared to being at sea level or a low low altitude where oxygen delivery is not compromised um, so that's just something that you need to be mindful of as coaches if you're ever to travel to high altitude especially for training camp um, that that fatigue in the first couple of days and then the, the physiologist used to say yeah they come around after that so it's the first couple of days i guess where their body's just you know, resetting its homeostasis up to that high altitude. Um, and then they're sort of able to perform after that. But in the intermittent hypoxic environment, we don't have any of that. We maintain hyperbaric, uh, uh, sorry, maintain barometric pressure, sorry. Um, so we don't, it's, it's um, literally just a, a room, you go in, you do training, it has a lower concentration of oxygen, a slightly higher concentration of nitrogen, but we have no change in pressure. So our athlete can go in and do a training session and go back out and recover in the normal sea, like normal environment. Um, so that has been sort of suggested to be beneficial uh, for improving repeat sprint ability, where you work really hard in the altitude, um, have long recoveries, and work again. And um, you know that can sometimes sh- it has been shown a little bit to translate that onto the sporting field, in sports like hockey, um, in sprint cycling, and a few others where those. Re- Repeat sprintability measures um, before and after a short block of altitude have the altitude set, or the hypoxic, I should say, training seem to elevate the athlete's performance after. But it's, again, it's a tricky one because we're still learning a lot around hmm. using these alternate training types.
0: For sure, for sure. Is there a um... Is, is there was repeat sprint training, is, is other types of training beneficial in the uh, like hypoxic environment? Um, in the hypoxic environment? Yeah, so long slow cardio or, or um, um, say longer intervals or, or is, is, there any, is there any, is it just repeated sprints that people want to be using or is, it, is there benefit to doing other work in there as well?
1: Definitely uh, beneficial for endurance training in terms of um, being able to do less mechanically, say on a bike um, or even on a treadmill and you get a higher cardiovascular strain, a lower delivery of oxygen, um, the athlete doesn't have to work as, as such a high intensity for the, almost the same outcome. Um, but what we need to be careful of there is not prescribing too much of that, that we you know take away that high quality training. But where it can be really good Um, is if you're trying to load manage athletes with maybe, you know, minor um, injuries or like those sort of symptoms, you can pop them in a hypoxic room and they could do a session on a bike or a treadmill or a a rower or, you know, whatever equipment you've got um, and still get a really good cardiovascular response and obviously all the underlying stuff without having to run them or, you know, at the same power output or the same running intensity that they would out in the sea level air. Mm. Um, I think where I was saying when it, it, it's, it gets really tricky with the um, high intensity anaerobic training just because the recovery is compromised in that altitude air. Um, so, what I've seen actually happen at NSWIS a couple of times when we had the altitude chamber running was that our, our sprinters might do, our sprint cyclists might do a really a wingate and then w- w- go out and sit in gym and recover in sea level air because that resaturates and they actually recover better and then they'll go back in and do their sprint in the altitude and, and go back out. They'd obviously sit in the room for a little while before they did their sprints, but they'd go back for three or four minutes and lay on the literally lay on the floor in the gym and recover. Mm. <laughs>
0: makes sense, makes sense, makes sense. Um, I, <laughs> I, I want to circle back around to the, like using it as like a load management type uh, thing. If, if you want to sort of deload a person or say they've got a little niggles, it sounds to me like it's a little bit less uh, biomechanically Uh, stressful for the athlete because uh, they might not have to and and maybe neurally a little bit less but but they're working just as hard cardiovascularly Uh, is it would the perception of effort like would their perception of how hard they're working be lower as well or would that be the same because they're in altitude and that's uh, making them breathe a bit harder
1: I think it's actually higher on average because what so what you get and when you walk into a chamber and you know a hypoxic chamber when the air's been on and you go from sea level to say three thousand meters above is you get an increase in resting heart rate um and ventilation so straight away everything's upregulated and then although you get on a you know you might get on a bike and do an easy session um you're not getting as much oxygen delivery back into your muscle cells during or after especially if if they stay in there for a little while afterwards so perceptually that although it's not a hard, heavy session, to the brain it feels hard. Mm. So it's an interesting one that way, um, that we don't have to mechanically work as hard, but we still feel like we've done a fair bit of work.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. And, and so we've, we've got this, uh, the heat and the altitude, how, how do you combine them? Do you do like heat and altitude at the same time? Do you do one day altitude, one day normal, one day uh, heat, one day normal? Like, how, how do you put this together in the grand scheme of things?
1: has been tried Um, if you've got the luxury of both I don't know that I recommend both at the same time because essentially you're adding two extreme stresses to an athlete's training regime at the same time Um, I think you just got to pick the one that's more important so if you were if you knew that you had a team sport like a football or an AFL or something and a couple of competitions were going to be in Darwin or somewhere where it's really hot and humid Um, or if it was, you know, you're going to travel there for quite a significant amount of time, I'd probably pick heat, um, and, and go for the heat acclimation and the improved improvements in, you know, cardiovascular heat regulation. So, you know, we, we sweat sooner and we, um, our sweat is less salty and all those things and, you know, getting increased in blood volume and and that sort of thing, um, to benefit my athletes in a hot environment, um, for altitude, um, what I've seen is it's been integrated into like a meso cycle of training quite effectively in, in some sports. Um, again, it's, it's it's still quite early days in terms of our overall understanding of, of how beneficial this type of training is. Um, but one, it might vary up your athlete's training um, and two, you might, you know, get that added benefit of something like repeat sprints or, you know, increasing um, cardiovascular fitness without having to do as much physical work. Um, generally need to train altitude at least twice a week, if not three times a week. So split that up every other day. Um, And heat's about the same, need about three exposures a week with that break in between to get a a beneficial effect um, for about a month. Um, With heat, there's a holding effect. Usually an athlete could could do their last heat session and then have time to travel and and get to their next um, location, if it was for an acclimation. I think for me, that's like seven to 10 days um, with the altitude up to three weeks on the study and you know the training methodology and that sort of thing.
0: So. Yeah. Right. And, and then obviously there's, uh, <laughs> there's active and passive, like be, be, using these interventions actively and passively, like you can go and sit in a hot tub after your training or a sauna after your training oh, yeah. to try, try and get that sort yeah. of heat acclimation. Um, or you can sit on a bike in a heat chamber or, or run in a, on a treadmill in a sweatsuit, uh, something like that. Well, is there any preferred yep. methods you might suggest for coaches based on your experience?
1: Oh, wow. There's so many different um, d- stimulus there in, in all those things, but um, I guess they're all used at some level. Um, I don't know, I'm going to be honest, a whole lot about using saunas after um, but it makes sense after a strength training session because it opens up all of our you know, blood delivery to cells. Um, the heat suits, the, the thing I'm uh, cautious of with something like using a heat suit over a heat chamber is that it just causes a hell of a lot of sweat. So it, what you won't necessarily get all um, the, the same benefit in, in terms of the enzymes and all the things that adapt being in a chamber versus being in a a bloody, you know, uncomfortable rain suit, as I like to think of it.
0: And then with altitude, would altitude be the same? Would you recommend um, people have these exposures in the hypoxic room, or would it be better to have them in, say, uh, sleeping in an altitude tent, uh, like a hypoxic tent at night or or something like that? Um, So
1: from what I've seen for endurance performance, the sleep high, live low, can be beneficial. They do need to be in those tents for at least 12 to 14 hours though um so what that can do is just over time increase epo which is our you know trigger for red blood cell formation um in saying that though what it can do is disturb athletes sleep so we need to just be mindful of like is the cost worth the benefit so what what we've read is like athletes don't um, sleep as well because I guess that just reduced oxygen environment you know, has a role with our central nervous system. And, and although we might not be aware of it, it knows what's going on. You sure. do get more dehydrated as well in that altitude environment. So I think the best setup we've got in Australia is the altitude house um, at the AES. And there's a few, probably a few other people who've got something similar, um, or at least it's, and, cause the tents they have to be run by like a generator as well, so that thing
0: makes a bit of noise. So mm-hmm. if you're a light sleeper, it's probably not worth it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Interesting. Interesting. Then then is is there a way of telling a person needs or altitude training would be beneficial for them or, um, and it might be depending on their sport, but, uh, or heat uh, acclimation might be beneficial for them even if they're not traveling to a a hot climate or a very high uh, environment?
1: The the easy one to answer is the heat with an endurance athlete. If they've got the you know luxury of having a, a heat chamber where they can go and train, it's still, still going to help their performance in a temperate environment. So you know, in a more balmy environment, if there's something really important coming up, um, because they're still going to get all those adaptations, and it'll actually help them race or compete better for that important event. Um, for aptitude, I don't know that it's one of those things that's critically important um, for you know peaking or for like a, a really big competition. It might be something using preseason to just. Elevate fitness levels or elevate that you know that sprint response. Um, resistance training has also been played around with in altitude, and there seems to be some evidence of a more of an anabolic response um, that comes from training in that hypoxic environment, like doing strength work in the hypoxic environment. But that one's again, it's still it's, still, it's in its early days. Mm.
0: It's always intrigued me, actually, because, uh, like, obviously you float further in a hypoxic environment, like long jump world record was in Mexico City really high, right, so you should be able to move bars faster yep. and, and uh, jump higher and a <laughs> little bit, so maybe you get, uh, maybe it's like an overspeed-type uh, stimulus when you're in it. Um, I've always thought about that.
1: I think that might be to do with um, the atmospheric pressure, definitely the long jump, there and the you go. balls, balls travels travel, uh, travel further. So the yeah. rugby and cricket sometimes they, you know, if they're played at high altitude, apparently oh. the ball path is is different. But yeah, I don't know about the bar path. You'd have to take your your bar to Atlanta and try it out. Mm,
0: for sure, for sure. So it's the barometric pressure that that uh, that is the main influence there.
1: In terms of the long jump performance and the sprinters, definitely yeah, that's that's why they sure. run faster because the air's thinner. Yeah, yep. for sure. <laughs> it's key one to understand because people just think, oh, altitude hypoxic, and then. They're not interchangeable, like black
0: like and white. Mm, no, hundred percent, hundred percent. Nat, look, it's been uh, been awesome talking to you. I, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I've learned learned a lot, um, not just on heat and altitude, but also the menstrual cycle as well. I'm going to uh, fire away <laughs> with some uh, quick fire questions for you. Uh, we might have already touched on these in the discussion, but um, and, and you can you can answer these with long elaborate answers. Please get on your soapbox if you want to. Uh, or um, they might be one or two word two word responses up to you, up to you. Um, the first one is what has been your big aha moment? Maybe you've been at a, a conference or you've spoken to a colleague or a coach or something like that, and where you've just the light bulb was turned on your head and that's exactly what I need to know. <laughs>
1: um, I think there's one just recently where I was sitting in on a level two, ASCA, just just hanging out um, while someone was presenting and one of the participants asked a question about oh you know when do i train x or y and and the response given was you can do anything at any time in a training program or a training session it's just how you justify it and how you sell it to your athletes um you know as long as you don't expect them to sprint maximally at the end of a session and i was like that's just such a good little reminder of like we sometimes overcomplicate things um being out in the industry and working by myself now as a coach, I don't have that interaction with other coaches. So that was just a really nice reminder. Um, another one was, um, I think it's a 26, 2016, 2016 conference in Melbourne, if I remember correctly, um, where I was sitting in a presentation by Justin Crow and he was talking about anti-fragility over resilience and teaching, our, you know, tra- training our athletes to not become resilient, but to become anti-fragile. And although I've forgotten a lot of the take-home messages, I just really liked that, um, that concept that sort of stuck with me that, you know, we can, we can build up resilience, but, um, you know, mentally, physically, if we can go one better and become what we, you know, anti-fragile and not crack at the first sign of, you know, stress or that sort of thing. And that's just something really cool to just keep in the back of your mind.
0: Mm, for sure. For sure. Um, next question. What are you gonna be most excited about developing or learning uh, in the next 18 months?
1: <laughs> probably more about my, uh, my area of menstrual cycle, to be honest, just to understand it. The more I read, um, you know, hopefully become a bit more involved in, in helping some of the male coaches just tackle this area. And because I know there's a lot of coaches out there that probably want to know more and want to know how to work with their females more. And I'm not saying I'm going to have all the answers, but just to come up with little strategies and, and ways that we might be able to integrate this into our practice um, is definitely one of the things I'm excited about. And I'm and I'm doing it, currently doing a bit of work um, for a privately owned altitude company. So just going back and forcing me to reread and and see what's come out in the last couple of years since I've really looked, had a good look at that, um, and see where we can integrate that into. Other areas like outside athletic performance, because there's a lot coming through that it is beneficial for health and our long-term health. So, although that one's a bit more clinical and a bit less S&C, it's still something that I think is
0: quite valuable. For sure, for sure. Actually, that brought me to another question, um, or just popped up in my head. With, with your uh, current team, with the, with the netball team, um, and uh, are you doing any menstrual cycling planning with them or tracking with them? And and if so, how are you going to do it? Uh, and, and what sort of, uh, how would you roll that out with them?
1: That's one that's um, I haven't honestly had a huge opportunity um, to sit down with the you know individual teams and work with them because I have such limited access to them. I have them once a week on a weekend for an SNC session. I talk to them individually and I like recommend the apps to them. But I think at the end of this season, even though we're in a bit of a lockdown and netball's not happening right right now, um, that forward planning for the next season i'd I'd really like to work with each of the coaches of each of the teams um, and have at least just have a session and and then maybe a follow-up session partway through the season where first we introduce apps to the girls um and and, you know these are the couple that i've used and recommend to track um and for them to just start to understand you know is this having an impact on their training on their competition on how they feel on certain days because like, like we've been saying since the start of the podcast, it's, um, it's something that seems quite prevalent. Um, and I'm not really doing it to you know, the best of my ability with my girls. So um, I think that's something that I need to improve on um, and uh, carry that in to, to help other coaches as well.
0: Yeah, cool, cool. Well, I'll, I'll be really interested to see what, what develops and, and uh, what happens in that. Um, next question. What's on the bookshelf? Any, any uh, really good books? Any, any courses or anything like that you might recommend to the listeners? Not a big reader. Um, I've read a few books in the
1: last year or so um, because of lockdown though. So I read Elise Perry's book on perspective and I found that really cool. Um, she, being an athlete, um, obviously she recognises that um, she's got a, quite a privileged life. But there's just some little moments in there where you just see the the young girl from school and how she's plugged away and you know taken all all her opportunities and it's just like nice little reminders um i'm currently reading um 12 rules of life i think it is antidote to chaos um a little bit lost about part way through that one um i like to read things outside of snc and sports science a little bit and just open up my mind to you know just common sort of things that we might forget about in everyday life Sure. courses i haven't done any courses for a while though so i might have to leave that
0: one Who, who's the who's the author of the 12 rules rules for life jordan peterson or something
1: that's the one yes yeah cool yes. what what, what yes. have been
0: what have been the takeaways so far from it for you um i'm <laughs> only into chapter two <laughs> that was uh just the
1: stigma around high society and, and some of the parties and things that he went to. That was in the prelude, I think. That you know, there's so much stuff in our in our lives, and you know what's really important. I think sometimes we get so caught up in all these bells and whistles and you know, high high profile living that, you know, in essence, um, he spoke about lobsters. <laughs> In the ocean floor, and it sort of brings you back to oh wow, the, you know. The, I think the point was like the little things in life, and and how lobsters survive in a certain part of the ocean, and then if you relocate them, um, I, I think it's just you know. Although we spoke about more anti-fragility antifragility resilience, but it sort of reminds you that uh, there sometimes the small things in life that we just get overlooked because we're so busy in our schedules. Um, that you know, take take a few steps back and appreciate the little things that we have.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. Well, Nat, it's been awesome. Um, for the listeners, if they want to get more information, maybe they want to reach out and, and uh, um, maybe ask some help on how to set up their own menstrual cycle um, tracking program with their athletes, anything like that, how would be the best way to get more information or to get in touch?
1: Um,
0: They can email me. I don't
1: mind if they... Email. Do you want me to say, do I say my email? Sure, go for it. Um, I'm just... Just one word. This is Deegan at hotmail.com. I don't mind if people flip me an email and my, I keep things pretty simple. My Instagram is about the same um, and I'm pretty sure my Twitter is about the same as well. So if you just type NatDig and you should be able to send me a direct message on one of those platforms and uh, even on LinkedIn, same, same one again. So you can find me on LinkedIn and, and add me there if they like.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, look, like I said, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I've learned a lot in the episode and uh, I'm, I'm really happy you could answer some of my questions that I threw at you. Um, And so, yeah, look, thanks again, Nat. Pleasure having you on. Thanks, Joseph. Nice to speak to you. Okay, before we go, we've got to throw another round of appreciation to Val Performance. They've really got them behind the ACA and this podcast. They are also a major sponsor of the ACA online conference, which, as I said prior, is happening right now. You should be registering for it if you haven't already. So as I mentioned before we started, if you are interested in any of Valve's products, please check them out, valveperformance.com. Uh, they're on the IG, Instagram, at valeperformance, or on the Twitter, at ValPerformance. no underscore on the Twitter, um, and that should be where you need to go. And that concludes another episode. I hope everyone enjoyed this one and learned a lot. I certainly did. And so until our next episode, I'm Joseph Coyne, and this is the ACA Podcast.